The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Well, now that's the 19th and 20th century. Now we have 50 Schelling, Hegel, and we can't go into those separately, of course, but we can call all of this Geist philosophy philosophy of spirit. That is to say, after Kant, these people, 50 Schelling, Hegel, they said, Kant, my friend, our father in the faith, that you didn't you did a wonderful thing for us you have set us free from dogmatism well everyone before Kant was said to be dogmatism whether that of the rationalist or of the empiricist but you have left us with a sort of a dualism after all you have a man who is absolutely free and at, and at the other hand a science and when that man expresses himself he has to express himself in categories that are in this phenomenal. Here's, suppose, here's Tom and there's Dick, or here's Randy and here's Johnny, and they wanted to commune with one another. They can't get commune with one another this way. That's a vacuum. There's no, no atmosphere there. So they have to speak in terms of concepts. And then when they speak of concepts and their own body get them into trouble because they aren't pure spirits. You see, they're own physical bodily makeup makes them part of this phenomenal world so they have to express themselves by means of the tools of this world now that's bad don't you see because the moment you do that you have again de-individualized you have generalized concepts are general can speak only general truths never particulars so you want to tell uh, and Randy wants to tell Johnny something very personal and then it comes through here, and it's very general. And it comes back to Johnny, and he didn't get the point. <coughs> now, <coughs> and then suppose you want to pray, and you want to pray to God, who is really, you want to get to person to person, and you want to get away from this orthodox I-it dimension realm. But you could don't. You have to speak to God and to words, and words are expressed by way of concepts. And so you have to say, O oh God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in your being, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You use, before you know it, you use Westminster. Oh, horrible addictive. Um, what did I do? I used the Westminster definition. Surely you can't make a definition of God. You can only make a definition of things in causal relationship with one another. And you see what an awful time they have with themselves. They were, not only that they were brought up on it, but that nobody, how long soever he's been away from it, can succeed in getting away from the necessity of using universal concepts as means by which you talk. No more, now I could go right through the pasture here to your place for breakfast or for lunch after a while. But suppose there was just absolute 
a ravine in Mexico. I went there one time. You have one tribe over here, and you have another tribe over here, and there's a big valley in between. And they, for practical purposes, though they're only 25 mile, miles apart, they just don't get together because now with airplanes and people that can afford to go in airplanes, they can get across. But you're in a valley by yourself, and I'm in a valley by myself. So now that is the problem of communication that faces them. So they're up against it. But their words are always de-individualized. I was once having a conversation or a sort of a outside under Setsung or debate with Dr. J. Oliver Buswell in his office in New York at the time. And uh, it was taken down on, on some sort of, not these modern things, but an old phonograph type of thing. And you ought to heard that when it came out. That was my voice. That was Buswell's voice. Sounded just the same. Well, if you knew Buswell, you would know that his voice was nothing like my voice. But don't you see, in the transition, the differences between his voice and my voice had been obliterated. Now, if you took the content the same way, don't you see, all content, the difference in content is obliterated. You can know nothing of God up here. Nothing. Nothing. And therefore, that was the thing that Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel were trying to overcome, this dualism that had resulted between pure individuality, which is pure freedom, but freedom out of all relations. Mr. Bird at the South Pole, talking to his pet penguin and clipping one of his feathers and says, you're going to be my pet penguin. But meanwhile, that pet penguin is lost among another million penguins. So, so then, how do I up there and you up there, well, ships in the night, oh, that's just faint, don't you see, compared to infinitely unrelated entities, which aren't entities because they haven't enough stuff in them to be an entity. Now, don't you see how they are related? Now, that's what Hegel is trying to overcome. And Fichte already said, look, you did very well, Herr Kant, to sell, say that the ich, the I, that is the starting point. Ich setze, he says, set sich selbst. Set sich selbst. The ego postulates itself. That's what you've got to start from. He didn't mean the individual ego, but the universal, absolute ego. So we have to think of reality as being subjective. We come to see the significance of that, particularly when you come pretty soon to Kierkegaard, he says, truth is subjective. Well, where does that come from? It comes from this terrific transition, transposition with Kant. Truth springs from the self. Now, they carry that through, and they try to say, well, now, then this world must not be thought of as so antagonistically over against us, but it must be thought of as a field where the ich exercises itself, and it needs this world, just like if you want to develop a strong physical body and you go exercising, you go boxing, and you need somebody to box with, right? And you biff them in the nose periodically and you get the biffs back. Well, I need Mr. Morse, not that I care a hoot about Mr. Morse, but I need him for myself as a field of exercise. Well, says 50, that's how you must think of this world. You mustn't set it so dualistically over against this world. You must think of it as something that you need. Well, 
50, and then Schelling, and then in particular, Hegel said, look, what we need to think of, not these two antagonistically over against one another, but as dialectically involved in one another. That is to say, we have the convex and the concave side of a disk, and you don't have a disk unless you have a convex side and a concave side. You don't have reality unless you have absolute other, unless you have timelessness, but also um, you need time and change in it. The Greeks, Plato had an absolute which was timeless, and then you denied, you denied time and change. Parmenides did. But now we must attribute reality to time, and we must incorporate that into our absolute. Well, if that's the case, then the absolute must no longer be an absolute changeless principle, but it must be itself a growing subject. And then it, now, Spinoza talked about ultimate reality, God being a substance. But now we say God is a subject. And God as Geist, that's why God as spirit. And that's why you have a spiritualist idealist interpretation of reality which includes everything which makes room for everything which has place for everything god needs this world this is called the concrete universal instead of an abstract universal a universal such as plato and aristotle had were was an abstract universal because it was negated it was abstracted from the space-time world but here the space-time world is included and therefore, we are now, all of us, in it. Man is in it. God is externalizing himself and realizing himself through history. He's enriching himself as he does so. The whole process of history, every form of religion, every form of paganism, as well as Christianity, contributes positively to the enrichment of the divine, ever-growing, concrete, moving, ever-going upward, life which is God or reality. Now that is Hegel's philosophy. It's well to note the difference between that sort of thing and the Spinozistic philosophy which was before Kant. Kant is between Spinoza and Hegel. Frequently you hear the expression said, Hegel is a rationalist because he said the real is the rational and the rational is the real. Now that was a sentence he employed. But what he meant by that was not this sort of Spinoza absolute rationalism, but what he meant was this concrete moving, dialectical. Now, you remember that this position before Kant is called dogmatism. Kant's position is called criticism. That is to say, I didn't speak adequately of that, that he is interested in the presuppositions which make intelligent, make experience intelligible. Die Bedingungen, die die Erfahrung möglich machen. Now, that's why he says we have to be critical. That is, we have to analyze. We must not uncritically, undogmatically adopt any position. Now, Hegel says you must, to be sure you are right, but you must make this criticism into a dialecticism, which means you must think that since there is no God in himself, as gibt kein Gott an sich, that you have nevertheless to postulate 
an ideal. That is what he means by a limiting, uh, Kant already meant that, a limiting concept, a grenzbegriff, a grenzbegriff. You stand over here at the border. Here's the ship, and you're right at the railing, and you can look into the mist and the fog on the Pacific Ocean infinitely. You can think of it infinitely. You can't walk out there. The only, and when you go on further on the boat, you're never getting any closer to it. The pole star is up there. No matter how much further mileage, how much more mileage you make on the ocean, you're not getting closer to the pole star. But you're using this pole star as in order to guide you for sailing on the ocean. Therefore, the idea of a God and absolute is not that you have any actual information of him in this world or contact with him in this world. That's out. But you can use that notion as a limit, a goal. And it is a grenzbegriff, a concept. Here on the deck, you have actual concepts. You can play, you can play tennis or, or whatever you want on it. But when you go beyond that back, you can have a first cause. You can have an absolute purpose. You can have an absolute being. Sure, the notion of absolute is a very useful thing. But you must never, never, never think that you can meet an absolute God or that an absolute God is here present to you in history at the beginning of history or that there will be a judgment at the end of history or that there, has, that there is now an absolute being that isn't part of the being of this world. Those notions are all fine as ideals, as ideals as we would put it in English. Now, that is the modern dialectical view in which you have what is called the concrete universal instead of the abstract universal in which you have God and man interacting with one another and it is all essentially God realizing himself in this process. Now out of that you get first the first great modern theologian. Friedrich Schleiermacher and his book on the Christian faith, which is the first great classic of modern theology. And it is a very great, important book. It's one of the great books. I think there are such things that all of us who pretend to be theologians in any sense should make ourselves somewhat acquainted with. This is one of them. Now, Schleiermacher is therefore the first modern theologian who sets theology on its head, who conscientizes theology. Therefore, when you formerly had theologians, they talked about the triune God, and they thought there was such a God, and he had created the world. Now, what you now do with Schleiermacher, he says, Jawohl, Jawohl, I believe in the Trinity, I believe in the triune God, but that is a limit for me. It isn't an actually existing God. I couldn't know anything about a trinity in the way that John Calvin did or Luther did. But we must have the notion, though, as a limit, not as a constitutive concept, which has a molding force on our own conceptual activity. Our own conceptual activity is in this world, is independent of that. And then we say we have to act as if there were such a triune God and as if that triumph God had created the world, as if 
he had in the person of the second person of the Trinity come down to us and as if he had died on the cross and as if he rose again. In other words, it's a totally new, different, basically subversive approach to the Christian religion. Now, we saw before that Kant made or saved science and made room for religion. Well, this is the kind of religion Kant made room for. Don't you see? Modern science says, here's this block of causal reality. And, he's, and the scientist formerly would say, well, your religion can't be true because it's against, it's deterministic or it's this. Well, now he says, look, <laughs> my friend, uh, you're a graduate from Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, aren't you? You're old, you're old. That is sehr good. And uh, very glad to have you in the presbytery, uh, provided, aber, that you don't get these old dogmatic notions and preach them, or if common people still need them, you can give them a little dose of that, you know, for their comfort, because they're dying off anyway. But if you really want to be where the action is, and then you must realize that the God in himself is, of course, a limiting concept. You can preach the Trinity, you can preach all the doctrines, but you now give them new meanings. The Germans have a word for it, as the Germans always do. Umdeutung. Reinterpretation. You know, we get bottles of milk delivered to the door at our house. Maybe some of you do. I see bottles over here in the store. Well, now, Suppose that you have the bottles of milk, but some notion, the, the milkman gets a notion that he hates you, you have done something he doesn't like. So he puts a little sort of poison. I don't know what's the most effective poison today. What would be a good poison to add to milk? Cyanide. All right, let's put a little cyanide. That wouldn't change the color of the milk any, would it? Therefore, you swallow it. As well, that's what they do. They have the same words, same words, God, triune God, creation, fall, redemption through Christ, death, resurrection, return of Christ, every one of the same words, but they all have cyanide in them. They're all conscientized. They have different meanings. They mean exactly the opposite of what you mean. You say you are created, but that does not mean anything with respect to your historical appearance in this world or with the history of mankind as such, as science has it. You can therefore believe about that whatever you please. And then you speak particularly of the death and the resurrection of Christ. You just say, the resurrection of Christ. Well, you see, in here, in this world, resurrections do not happen. They simply do not happen, because this is the world of causal, of necessary relations. If there were to be a resurrection here, and if we were to know anything about it, we would have to know them in terms of this necessitarian system. I think it's chapel time, isn't it? We better not. Oh, there is no chapel? Oh. Well, now, were you, you were going to have this this afternoon, were we? That's up to you. If you would like to have another session this afternoon. Well, is, the, is it likely that some boys that are not here now might come? Now, uh, Long has been interested. Mr. Long. He wouldn't belong. Oh. Well, what do you prefer? How many would prefer to 
keep going for a while now. Yes, it's all right with me if you're willing, but how many would prefer? Any preference? All right, let's continue then till we get tired. Until right. all of us get tired. Because we're in seeing this now. Then, you see, let's go over the story now then. You have this first period. You have dogmatism, you have criticism, you have dialecticism after Kant. Now, and you have Schleiermacher, the first modern theologian. Then you get Ritual, Albrecht Ritual. Now, he was in the middle part, you know, of the 19th century. There were many other theologians. There were theologians who tried to synthesize Hegelian philosophy with Christian theology, and many of them, and there are books full of them. But Ritual, Albrecht Ritual, stands out, and he stands out in a special sense because he, more obviously than anybody before him, conscientized Christianity. He has definitely this view of reality, a phenomenal world, and a numeral world. And for him, religion is this thing which Kant says is possible, and science is here and never the twain can meet. And consequently, he has a science which is independent of theology and a theology that has nothing to do and to fear from science. Now that was in the second. Now this whole period of the 19th century is usually spoken of as modernism. It came to a head, as you know, with the latest of the some of the 19th century theologians, which were among them Hermann and Harnack. Now, they were both teachers of Karl Barth. They, Harnack wrote a famous book on the essence of the Christian religion in 1900 in which he set forth the typical modern religious point of view. But meanwhile, there had appeared, unbeknownst to most other people at the time, a gentleman by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Now, he is that Danish philosopher who, as, now you, as you know, is now so popular, and he had a tremendous influence on Karl Barth, but during his lifetime, he was not well known, and his philosophy, his writings, went practically unnoticed, partly because they were written in Danish and not at once translated into German. Now, that means that we're now going to get onto a development from the first spirit, period, which is Geist philosophy, Hegel, which is modern dialecticism, and then we get a period which is usually spoken as Laban's philosophy, life philosophy, in which you have people like Heinrich Rickard, and, and you have Bergson, and you have Bergson in France, creative evolution. You have pragmatism in this country, William James and John Dewey. You have Samuel Alexander's space, time, and deity, also temporalism in Great Britain, and you have in Germany Heidegger, sign on sight. Now, I want to say a word about Kierkegaard in passing. In the first place, his reaction was against Fichte and Schelling, particularly Schelling. Now, I didn't say anything about Schelling. 
Kierkegaard went to Schelling's classes, and Schelling was a post-Kantian idealistic philosopher who had a unified outlook, as he thought, of an idealistic nature, which stressed with an emphasis on the reality and the significance of nature. Now, Kierkegaard said, fine, dialecticism, yellow, but not a monistic dialecticism. And then he argued against Hegel, and Hegel was their Herr Professor, as he calls them. And the Herr Professor always sent his class off at the end and say, boys, come back next time. We didn't quite solve the problem, but we will next time. Well, that's always an excuse for Herr Professors to say. Well, so what, Kierkeg what Kierkegaard, incidentally, I am told, is this right? The pronunciation is Kierkegaard. Can anybody correct me on that? That's what I've been told. I used to first pronounce it Kierkegaard in like a Dutchman would, but it isn't that. It's Kierkegaard, I'm told. Now, uh, he is interested in doing this thing to introduce dialecticism, but to introduce a measure of dualism into this dialecticism. Hegel's dialecticism was a mono-dialecticism, a monistic dialecticism in which everything was at once included in and related to and God, uh, subordinated to God. But then he says we get a system. Now, actually, the system that Hegel had when he said the real is the rational and the rational is the real was not at all the system that Spinoza had because it is a spiritual system, a moving system, a system in which time and space are taken up into God, and so it isn't at all, but it's still too much of a system. And consequently, he, he says, you've said that truth is the subject, and Spinoza said it was a substance, but you didn't really make that count for anything. You should really say the truth is subjective, and then you should have a God who is really wholly other, of whom nothing can be said. You've got a God, and you say too far, far too much about him. You say it is possible to overcome the dualism that Kant had and by means of a, a dialectical movement. Now, he says, there is no way of saying anything whatsoever about God. We are down here by ourselves. God is up there and never the twain shall meet. Now this is the first existential philosopher, and the point is that existential philosophy isn't any different from this idealist philosophy of Hegel or the life philosophy that followed Hegel, except for the fact that it's more consistently man-centered if anything is possible. Now, before I go on, I just want to call your attention to the fact, maybe you're well aware of it, but that Dr. Edward Carnell, one of, I think it was the latest book that he wrote, was on Kierkegaard, and he, oh well, there were things in Kierkegaard you mustn't accept, but in general, I'm sehr guter Christian man. And, and then my good Baptist friend in Denver, what's his name? Uh, he's a very good fundamentalist, Orthodox, he's, in, he's the president of the Vernon Brown. Now, he swallows Kierkegaard, hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> really, it's a pity. Now, 
What do you make of this sort of thing? I can't make head or tail out of it, friends, that a man who is, is just evident of the need of becoming epistemologically self-conscious. That's what it is evidence of. Surely, negative, too bad. I, Vernon is a good fellow, awfully good fellow. So was Carnell. But the point is that they have not seen the fact that this means swallowing Kant and all his consequences. In other words, Kierkegaard is in line, first of all, with his empiricism, rationalism, and with Kant's modifications, that truth is in the subject, and that there is, therefore, no created world. You see, what he militates against is what he calls the system. And he says it's the Hegelian system that he's opposing, but it's reality. In reality, it's the orthodox Christian system that contains precisely and alone and exclusively what he hates most. What he hates most, and incidentally, his book, Fragments, is the thing that's a small book. It's called Fragments. And then he has another one, Unscientific Postscript, which is an exposition of the fragments. It's three or four times as big as the fragments, but it is like a, an addition to the fragments. Now, those are his most philosophical works. He's got all kinds of other books of a more religious, directly religious nature. But the point of it all is that he opposes, as he opposes nothing else, the idea that there should be a direct revelation of God in history and that you should be able to know something of this sort of God. Now, the thing to realize is that this is the spot where Karl Barth started from. In the introduction to his book on Romans, Karl Barth says that if he has any philosophy, it is that of Soren Kierkegaard to the effect that there is a qualitative difference between God and man. That he says, God is in, God ist im Himmel, du bist auf Erde. Here you are. And God is above. And God doesn't speak to you in words that you can understand because Kant has told us that God can't do this to us. In other words, there is underneath Kierkegaard's philosophy the whole of the Kantian position. There isn't any reasonable doubt about that. Don't you see? That makes it impossible, utterly impossible, to connect Kierkegaard's thinking with Orthodox Christianity. And, and Karl Barth didn't intend to do so. He graduated from the university, and he had had these two people particularly, others too, of course, but he had particular Harnack and Hermann for his teachers. And he realized that if he were to preach what these men had taught him, he would have nothing to preach, that people wouldn't already know. He couldn't stand at the deathbed of people and talk about the dialectical system of Hegel and that God was realizing himself in time and that somehow they were to be absorbed in this process, oh, to be nothing, oh, to be absorbed into this process. Isn't it a blessed event? If you can, uh, if when the absolute comes around again with this movement, absorb you into it also. Isn't it glorious to be lost in the absolute, to be saved, saved, to be sublated, to be aufgehoben into 
the life of the absolute. And the individual must not love its own individual existence. That's selfish. You must want to be absorbed. You must give yourself your very existence. Now, that's Hinduism, that's Eastern mysticism, that's as pagan as pagan can be. But Kierkegaard is no less pagan. What earthly difference does it make? Whether you reject the Christian system by incorporating it thus into, is it close here? You want to open the window? If, you, if it is. What's the difference? Whether you are, shoot me, I didn't mean to cut you out. There's always throwing over. I know, you're being abused. I've seen that. I'll write you a letter after I get back to comfort you. Don't you see? Now what's the difference and what's better? Whether you have Christianity absorbed, why am I holding that? <laughs> whether you are absorbed into the life of the absolute or whether the life of the absolute is wholly other and has no context. And don't mistake, this is still dialecticism. And one of these times there will be contact, and there was contact. In these fragments, there is a young maiden and there is a prince. And the prince wants to make love to this young rustic maiden. But he comes, of course, in the regalia of a king, and the rustic maiden is afraid of him and runs away from him. So he has no anknupungspunt with her. So he goes home and he changes. And he puts on an overall and jacket and all of that sort of thing. And then he comes and then he has anknupungspunt with her. She goes out to a dance with him readily. But then he wanted to make her a princess. And then, of course, when he hasn't, he can't tell her that he's a prince because the moment he does, she evaporates. And so he has this problem of communication. Well, now, God is wholly other, don't you see? We know precisely nothing about him. And how can that God be of any help to us? Now, Hegel and idealism, in which Karl Barth had been brought up, he says, man is no different from God. He is not qualitatively different from God. He's the same stuff as God. He's just a little lower, but he's being carried up, and pretty soon he'll be in divinity, and then he'll... There is no qualitative difference. So, Barth says, this is what I want, boys. He went to Switzerland after he graduated. First he took a job, a clerical job. He didn't think he had anything to preach, but... Pretty soon you find him in Sovinville, a little Swiss village, and then he reads the Bible, and then he reads Romans, and he finds in Romans that Paul speaks of an other situation. He speaks of a God who comes to man by revelation, and this is his expression, Sankerecht von oben, straight down from above. Not this dialectical curvature stuff business, not something which brings man of necessity naturally into divinity, but a God who finds man down here, low down in the deeps, wallowing in the mire, and everybody down here is salish, geschichtig, psychological, historical, has to come under condemnation. And so he turns to read Paul, Romans, and then he reads 
John Calvin and he reads Luther and he finds that they agree with Paul in speaking of a God who, if he comes man, he elects them. And he reads Romans 9, Romans 8 and 9, and he speaks of a God, he sees that here is sovereign election and grace, and that's the gospel. He says, this wasn't the gospel, this modernism, and who are the modernists? Schleiermacher and Ritual and his own Lieber Freund und Meister Hermann. And he says he has become ein etwas besonderer Hermann Schuler. He's become somewhat of a peculiar Hermann Schuler scholar, he says. Which means when he sends Hermann, his former teacher, a copy of this book, he has, writes him a little note, well, I'm awful sorry, I love you still. But, aber, I don't agree with you anymore. So, this is supposedly a radical break. And when he writes in the second edition to this book, then he writes a little note. He says, what happened was that something like if a boy climbs in a bell tower of a church, and then he falls down, and accidentally he, he grabs the rope, and then, of course, the bell starts ringing. And then everybody comes. He thinks, fire, fire, fire. And so fundamentalists and modernists, and everybody comes to look. Everybody goes to see a fire. So here's something so... Gansandris, a wholly different, a new theology. And he didn't mean that, he says. He wasn't trying to be funny or trying to make something so radically new, but he did find this thing to be wholly other in Paul. And then he says, back to the reformers, boys, back to Calvin and back to Luther. We need a new Reformation theology. You know Dr. Horgan of Evanston, is it? has a little book, The New Reformation Theology, in which he, Dr. Horgan, expresses what is tantamount to a, this type of new theology, which is Karl Barth. Well, now, on this basis, God is pure negation, he says. God is pure negation. Now, I, what I'm interested in now is to see how that is an expression of Kant's philosophy. This is the world of conception of that God who is wholly other. No one single syllable, no concept can be, no sentence can be said, no proposition can be made. To be sure, that God, when he does reveal himself, he will reveal himself to us and he has to do it in language that we can understand and therefore he uses concepts and he writes by means of human instruments, prophets and apostles, and they use the Griffin concepts. The Bible is, of course, the Bible is in the phenomenal realm. Where else could it be? Because it is here that he must reach us. So when that revelation comes in here, it is it has to come in it completely, because you see the requirements of the conceptual system is that you see through it altogether or you see through it not at all. In other words, when the sun lights up everything, you see every fact there is here. And when a conceptual system is, you build up a thorough conceptual system, then that fact over there is related to this fact. So you can press a button there and have things move over here. Like a warden in charge of a prison, he can make number so-and-so in that cell respond by just ringing, pushing the button. 
Now God, therefore, when he is revealed, he must be wholly revealed. Otherwise, he isn't revealed at all if he isn't wholly revealed. But then is the other side of it. He is at the same time wholly hidden. If wholly revealed, also wholly hidden. Why is that? Well, because that kind of individuality, eternal, changeless, eternal being, we can't have any notions of that at all. He is wholly hidden. We can say God is awfully old. As I told you about that little bird whose beak was sharpened on the mountain of brass in Switzerland in the first, when that was flat to the ground, the first second of eternity has passed. Well, obviously, says Bart, we have no idea of God's eternity by having ideas of an infinitely extended time. Therefore, even when God says to us, I am eternal and unchangeable, and you write that into your confession, you Presbyterians, then if you are really to have God there, you must never think that he is what you are saying that he is. You must not identify his being with what your words have said about him. You must think of him and of his revelation to be sure on the one hand as wholly revealed there, and that's rationalism with a vengeance, but you must also think of him as wholly hidden here, and they must be correlative to one another, and that's dialecticism. The wholly revealed and the wholly hidden character of that revelation, and that is what he means also when he says revelation is Geschichte, or, or we'll say history because he doesn't make the difference here, but history is not revelation. Here is history. Well, revelation coming from there has to enter into this history. Therefore, it has to be making connection with Jesus of Nazareth. But then you mustn't say that history, Jesus of Nazareth, is revelation. In other words, you cannot change those two around. Now, these things, if you can keep those points in mind, the holy revealed and the holy hidden character of God's revelation, and that God, that revelation is history, but history is not revelation. Now, if you just mull over those things and keep those things in mind, then gradually you'll get to understand something of it. Without it, you won't, but with it, you will, if you work at it. Yes, Mr. Morse. Well, for that's a good question. The point is that this is a system in which one thing see the light goes through the whole of reality. Thank you. The light, the real is the rational, and the rational is the real. In other words, you remember that Parmenides said that reality must be what I can logically say that it must be, and it can't be anything else. Therefore, there can't be anything real except what is exhaustively penetrable by my logical capacity abilities. Now, if it is known at all, anything is known at all, it is totally known. Otherwise, it is out there in the unknowable, you see. Now, 
If it is known at all, anything is known at all, it is wholly known. Otherwise, it is out there in the unknowable, you see. Therefore, the moment it's in here, it is wholly known. But now, that would be pure rationalism and pure determinism. And to counteract that, he says, yes, but this is actually, in reality, there is also the pure contingent aspect, and that's wholly unknown. And now we have to say, not of this thing, that it is partly known and partly unknown, but you have to say it's wholly known and wholly unknown. Now, I know that's horribly confusing, but uh, that's what it is. And, well, everybody that knows it at all knows it's holy or he doesn't know it at all. Where is God holy known according to God? In this world, by you. If you know anything at all, God, since he has revealed himself in this world, is holier. Uh, the point being, and I, I, very good, keep on asking questions. Uh, orthodoxy has a God that's up there and I've used this illustration before, like a mountain lake. And we don't know what he is. He keeps his own counsel, and he reveals himself so much as he pleases, and later on some more, maybe. But now Bart has opened up the gates, you see, and now we have that water is over here and comes down. And you can control the irrigation ditches. You now know that there's nothing up there but water. And it's the same thing, same kind of water that's down here. That is to say, uh, Mr. Smith isn't here, <laughs> or isn't he the boss? I don't know who the boss is around here. Uh, now, since that God is of the same substance, all is water. Therefore, when you know water, you know the water of the Pacific Ocean. Now, there's a little salt in there that you don't find in the lakes here. But basically, you see, what comes in here is into, is wholly brought into it, because God is nothing. You know for sure that there is no God in himself. You see, Kant has helped us for that. See, there is no God in himself. Therefore, what comes from there is there's nothing left there. It's all here. Therefore, it's wholly in here. Therefore, the incarnation is not the incarnation on the part of the second person of the Trinity in his human nature, but it's the whole triune God turning wholly into the opposite of himself, you see? That's why his, his theory of the Trinity is modalistic in the sense that three persons of the Trinity are three times over saying the Lord, that Christ is the Lord of history. It doesn't mean there are three centers of consciousness. And when it comes to election, you see the import of this comes all along the line of every Christian doctrine, particularly that of election. And that's why he says the orthodox doctrine of election is so horrible, because it has a God who is not wholly known to us in Christ. And therefore, he can arbitrarily elect some to salvation and others, and we don't know whether we're among the elect. But now, he says, if we say that Christ is the electing God, then we know that the essence of God, the whole essence of God, 
is completely expressed in the electing work of Christ. And then we know that we are saved and we have the comfort of the gospel. And we know that everybody else is saved. Therefore, we have the comfort of knowing that all men are saved. Now, that's God is wholly revealed or he's not revealed at all. Now, that is what he means by saying that his approach is Christological. That is, in the Christ event, in what happens, all reality is expressed exhaustively in that event. Now, therefore, the event itself is its own explanation, and you couldn't have an explanation of it in a book called the Bible, once for all, apart from that event. Now, that's, I'm glad you asked the, the question at this point. Now, the, the other side of the coin is that while that is true, then that is, God is wholly hidden. Because, you see, even this world has a contingency aspect to it. We saw that Kant saved science, but he didn't mean by saving science that he excluded the contingent. No, he meant the opposite that he built the contingent into science so that, that we control it, that we aren't worried about it at all. But it is nonetheless wholly contingent, and therefore we are wholly hidden to ourselves. God is wholly hidden to himself. And when God in Christ becomes incarnate, he's wholly lost to himself. He's wholly hidden to himself. And when Jesus says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? then God is going under into the irrational. And that's just why he says this is not docetic. Orthodoxy, he says, is docetic. It hasn't really a God who comes near man, who identifies himself with the state and fate of man. Orthodoxy saves the human nature of Christ from being real human nature by tying it on to his divine nature, asolutos, atreptos. And then it does, then it, then Jesus is sinless and other people aren't sinless. I mean sinless in some phenomenal world sense of the term that he didn't get angry, that he didn't do this. But we must not think of Jesus as an individual as sinless and distinct from other men. He is the only real man because he is the only elect man. He's the elect man. He's the electing God and the elected man. Now, that, you see, shows that God is wholly revealed and wholly hidden. And that, again, shows, you see, that you cannot take this, this whole point of view and take part of it, take so many points of it, take its teachings with respect to God or man and leave the rest of it. You can't grade Bart by saying, now, I guess we'll grade him. There are ten points. His doctrine of God... How much would you give him for that? Huh? His doctrine of creation? Well, he says his doctrine of the virgin birth, 10. He believes in the virgin birth, right? And here's Bruner. Here's Bruner and here's Bart. I've got his, I've got his grade book. Don't you see? I'll grade you fellas arbitrarily that way pretty soon. Here's Bruner. Now, on the doctrine of the Trinity, Oh, I guess we'll give me seven, shall we? <laughs> but on the, bar, on the doctrine of the virgin birth, Bruner gets zero and Bart gets ten. Don't you see? My good friend William Childs Robinson 
argues, well, isn't it much better to believe in the virgin birth than not to believe in it? And a Dutch Reformed preacher, Tannis by name, isn't it much better? A natural revelation, he gets ten, and Bart gets zero, or maybe we'll give him two. Now, on common grace, Brunner gets eight. He's a little different from, he's better than Herman Hooksman. And, and uh, again, Bart gets, oh, zero. He doesn't believe in natural revelation at all. Well, my friends, that's just not the way to do it. I mean, uh, they differ with each other, but they are still in basic agreement with one another that their thinking is based on Kant and Kierkegaard and that therefore they do not believe one iota or tittle of the historic orthodox view, no matter what words they use. You can read hundreds of pages in Barth that sound as though they are like Calvin's, Calvin's Institutes. Andy? I, uh, once we got him down here, we're going to know all about it. Now I'm going to become holy, unknown, I guess. Uh, I get, didn't get that. Will you if you know God, if he comes down, yeah. and we know him holy, how does he get back out? Oh, no, 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 wait a minute, sir. He doesn't come down here and you know him holy. At the same time that you know him holy, you don't know him at all. I mean, you don't say, now I've got him and I know him holy, and five minutes later I don't know him holy, or I don't know him at all. You both at the same time always know holy and you, are, you don't know him at all. That's dialecticism, you see. And that's just the point that you have to say both as simultaneously true. Otherwise, if you said that you knew him holy and didn't say at the same time that you are wholly ignorant of him, then you would be the worst of rationalists and determinists in his schemes. Then you would be a pre-conscient determinist like Spinoza who said reality is substance and I can by logic or Parmenides. I can, by logic, see through ultimate reality. But he wants to do justice to both Parmenides and Heraclitus, to both the idea of exhaustive penetration as an ideal and exhaustive ignorance, because God himself is that. You see, God himself is involved in this with us. He is one with us, and we are one with him. He is wholly revealed. That's what I meant by that illustration of the mountain lake. The, the Trinity, the tri Bart's view of the Trinity is what he calls a revelational view of the Trinity. He says orthodoxy has a view of the Trinity which he says is speculative, philosophical. It isn't really biblical, he says. All we know about God is what through Christ we know of God. And that then we know that that God is not one who, in advance of events happening in this world, determines them. He says, as gibt kein Gott an sich. There is no God. As gibt kein Gott an sich. And as gibt kein decretum absolutum. There is no absolute decree. Now that's a universal negation, you see, which as we've already pointed out before, means that for all his supposed limitation of human knowledge to this world, he nonetheless, in effect, makes a universal negation about all reality and about God. 
Therefore, there is no such trinity as Calvin or Luther believed in. Now, he thinks it's terrible to believe in such a trinity. It's terrible. To, he says the face of Calvin's God is the face of what he calls a freck. I don't know what's a good translation of that, but a horrible, I guess, ogre is maybe a good translation of the idea of a freck. It's the idea of an arbitrarily electing God, Esau to perdition, Jacob to salvation, and so forth, down the line. But he says, now that we think Christologically, which he might say, now that we have interpreted the scriptures according to Kant, now we know that we know of nothing of such an absolute existing God. We only, we still speak of such one, but then we speak of him as wholly revealed in Christ, then we say Christ is the electing God. There is no God who elects and then says to Christ, now I've elected people and I want you to go down and save those people that I have elected. That's how he says the orthodox view of election is, whether supra or infra or what have you. But the point here is, he says, Christ is the electing God. There is nothing beyond the act of election. Christ is God, to be sure, but there is nothing beyond Christ as God. There is no God's essence, no being of God prior to the act of election. There is no eternity. The notion of eternity, of an eternal being, is wholly meaningless to us. You see, that's an application of Kant's philosophy, that you can't say anything about eternity. All you can say is about act in this world and then you have to say that God is in Christ electing God Christ is the elected God is the electing God now then go right on from that and therefore Christ is the elected man there is no man in himself like orthodoxy has a man created in the image of God the story of Adam and of Eve and then the historic fall, and then the, the massa perditionis that follows, all men involved in that. There, that means nothing theologically. The first man that appears is Christ. He's the only man that is real man. And other men are men only to the extent that they are fellow men with Christ. This is his, his expression, mitmensch, mitmensch Jesu, fellow men with Christ. That is to say, they aren't men. They couldn't be men unless they were redeemed men. And that's why, to bring back again to your mind, therefore election is never a person's. It isn't that Esau as a person is rejected. Nobody is rejected. Esau, to be sure, is rejected. So is Jacob rejected. So are we all rejected. To be sure, we are under the wrath of God and under his curse. But we are all of that in Christ. And so Christ has borne that for us. And since Christ has borne it for us, the final word for all of us, that means every human being, is yes. And that's why the, the penultimate is no, but the ultimate word is yes. Now that all comes out of this notion that there is no God in himself and therefore no triune God. God is wholly revealed. That doesn't mean Jesus of Nazareth. He is revealed at that point, 
but you must not identify God, the Son of God, with some historical individual like Jesus of Nazareth. Well, if he is revealed to us and he's not revealed to us in Scripture, how is he revealed? He is revealed to us in Scripture. Oh, I understand. No, yes, well, I mean not the way you think of Scripture and the way you think of Revelation. See, we think of Scripture as as the actual words spoken by those who were instructed by Christ to speak in his name, isn't so? The apostles and the prophets. Now that, he, he says, that's direct revelation. He says, that, he says, is profane. The real Christian view is the moment-by-moment interaction of revelation. And then we are taken up into revelation. It isn't as though there is a body of revelational truth there, scripture, on the basis of which the church makes its restatements and its confessions but that would be direct revelation. But that would be to bring God down in the I-it dimension, which is the great sin of orthodoxy. That is, it encloses God in prisons, in concepts, and then it controls him. And then there are Presbyterians who kick people out because they aren't orthodox. They don't know anymore. But they used to. Now, in other words, then you get heresy trials. But we can get rid of all of that. We can be all in Christ and we need no more heresy trials and we need not any of us to say that we have any more truth than anybody else and that we all are in the truth and that includes all men. Now, therefore, you see, direct revelation, that's bad. But this conscience notion of a holy other God who becomes wholly identical with, and when he is wholly identical with, is still wholly hidden in. Then science and philosophy and religion, it's all been harmonized, because that's true of all of them, you see? And then all churches are one, and all religions are one. That's why it's such a wonderful instrument of ecumenism. That's why these people at Princeton Seminary now, like Henry and Dowie and the president, they're all Bardian, basically. And that's why they can write what they say, a confession, which is not for Presbyterians alone. That little expression, not for Presbyterians, it means it's for Hindus, too. I mean, it just virtually means that. It just takes a little time. It's not for fundies, though. It's not for the likes of us, because we, unless we will promise to keep quiet, <laughs> then you can always stay in. Now, other questions. I'm wondering, is what is being revealed through Christ just say the concept of election, not not a specific person, so to speak, but just the fact that men are elected? And this is what we have revealed to us, not a specific Person, but well, every specific t- person. It includes every human being. Right, but what is important in, in the Christ event, say, is, is what is revealed to us about God and that he elects people. Yeah, that's this right. Is what is, what is that important. is right. And then, you see, all that is symbolized by Jesus of Nazareth, it's, and therefore you, the orthodox terminology is employed, and therefore his crucifixion. But also, for that reason those 30 days from 
I mean, the years 1 to 30, and the resurrection, the post-resurrection events, he hems and haws about that. They are in history, in his story, Aber, their primary locus is Geschichte, the real event. What takes place here is not something on the calendar, one day the death, the next day the resurrection, or three to the third day the resurrection. If you said that, you would be back with the fundies, and you would have cut up everything again, you would have reduced everything to the I-it dimension again. You would have killed Christianity. See, Orthodox Christianity is not something innocent for him. It's a horribly bad thing, particularly if it's the Calvinistic Orthodoxy that says some people are elect and others are not elect. That's why some people, when they first read about Bach, they thought this is a return to Calvinism. And if they're Methodists, or so they don't want it, you see. But they ought to be happy because this is universalism, more universalism than Arminianism ever was. In other words, evangelical Arminianism still believes that it is important for you to know about Jesus who died in history and that you must send missionaries out to Brazil to tell them about what happened, that they must prostrate themselves on this basis, what you go out as a missionary to Brazil or to see Plato, wherever he is, you don't have to say to him, you must repent and believe in the fact that Christ died for you on the cross on that day or a certain day in history. That's not important. The big point of importance is to tell him that he is in Christ and that he's a real man and that he can come to self-consciousness on the subject by learning more about it from you but not that you bringing him a message that he doesn't already have. Yes. Well, what does he do with, well, I mean, he just doesn't admit the fact of hell. That's right. That's right. He does not. He says there is no hell. There's only victory over hell. That's literally quoted. Now, he does not. But don't you see, you mustn't say everybody is saved and mean by that saved from the wrath to come. There is no wrath to come. So to be saved doesn't mean the same thing for him at all that it means for you. The words have different meanings. Now we get hard, find it hard to get away from our meanings and that's why when, when somebody tells you, well, Bart believes in the virgin birth, then we are happy. And when, when somebody says, well, Bart obviously believes the resurrection and when Carl Henry writes an article that has to every fellow Bultman, he's a bad fellow because he talks about the parthenogenesis of the resurrection and then we think Bart's at least better because he defends the resurrection as an event against Boltman and then we say isn't it a lot better well I should say you go to hell with Bart as well as with Boltman I mean what's the difference I mean his system is no more Christian there is no transition from wrath to grace in this world where Christ lived and died and rose from the dead for your sins and mine to save us from the wrath to come. Bart does not believe in that any more than Boltman does. Then what he does believe, as over against Boltman, does leaves me absolutely cold, except I have to know it to be able to talk about it. But as far as the practical results of it is concerned, there is no more gospel. Now, the sad thing is that good evangelical people 
they will say, oh, it's bad Boatman, Boatman. But the first thing is they keep silent about Bartsy. And then the next thing is they... Uh, Bart's concept of individual sin, does he ignore it, or does he see it into general... Yeah, it's, it's in this general picture. We're all sinners. But we're not sinners because we have inherited sin from a certain man, Adam. And we're not sinners primarily because we do certain things. You're not a greater sinner than I am or I than you. Sin, it's a bad thing. It's a horrible thing. And we're under the wrath of God. But that's true of every elect person as well as of every reprobate person, of every saint, the best person, to the dying is dead. There is no separation. You can't read Romans 8 and say, look, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And there is condemnation for those that are not in Christ Jesus because all are in Christ Jesus. Now, all are, none of them are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, God's grace is wholly hidden to all of them. But all of them are in Christ Jesus because grace is wholly revealed in all of them, you see. Now you would say that there's nothing really to repent about, just you've been worrying about nothing all this time. Yeah, but now we mustn't draw the conclusion, of course, that Bart is utterly indifferent to everything moral or immoral. I mean, he's a good fellow. And I think, I'm not judging him either. I'm not saying he isn't personally a Christian. And uh, if I had to choose in practice, I would rather believe Bartianism than Boltonism. But I mean in the sense that it is the issues of life and death with which we are concerned. Then my contention is that his theology isn't any better than that of Boltman. And is not calculated, if you trust in the Christ of Bart, you're not a sinner, and you need not be saved by the blood of his atonement. There is no place for substitutionary atonement in Bart any more than there is in Boltman, you see. And therefore, his resurrection is no more a resurrection for our justification in history, on the basis of which we are now on the staircase that leads to glory. We're not saved from the wrath to come. There is no such thing as final separation. In Bart's theology, what is good of the resurrection? What is good? If what uh, if Christ had already come to reveal the righteousness. Oh, no, but the resurrection is for him the all-important thing because it lights up every other thing. But then, uh, and I'm glad you asked that question, we'll stop with that. That is to say, which proves again that the resurrection cannot be for him what it is for orthodoxy. You see, he says if you have direct revelation, orthodoxy, and then you have the death of Christ, and then you have the resurrection of Christ two days later. Well, now he says, how could the resurrection of Christ, if it were taken in that sense of the term, be the fact which lights up all other facts? Because in that case, it would be a, a fact among other facts in need of being lit up, you see? And it wouldn't help you any. Therefore, the resurrection to be what it is, it must have been from all eternity the idea of grace that all men are from all eternity in Christ. Therefore, we are elect in Christ, we're risen in Christ. Therefore, what's happening here is symbolical of an eternal eventuality. Would Bart say that this thing, this concept of, uh, of God and Satan and sin and Christ and the atonement, that was out here and it was accomplished on his plan, and we down here are just to all be affected by it and, and, 
it's not a personal situation, but a general situation. Yeah, but he would say it is exhaustively personal. In other words, that's just what makes it so personal. He wants to build you into that thing individually so that you are personally deeply concerned in it. He doesn't want a platonic, abstract, eternal, changeless being and us down here. No, and that's why it's more like Hegel's philosophy. By our own knowledge, by our own self-knowledge. Yes, that, that is true. You become aware of it, but you'll never be perfectly aware of it. But the point is that you must become aware of the riches that you have already in Christ. And this, his German expression is soon born herein. In advance, justification, Abram Kuyper talked about justification from all eternity. And then some of us Orthodox people would criticize old Brahm for that. And uh, I had a couple of students from Amsterdam a number of years ago. They, when I was talking about this, they said, well, what's wrong with that? Old Abraham Kuyper talked about justification from all eternity. Well, that shows that these boys hadn't yet gotten the first inkling of what is true about the matter, though they did attend the Free University of Amsterdam. Namely, when you have, as Abraham Kuyper did, an absolute commitment to the historic Christian religion, then you can maybe overstress the fact that God's eternal plan is back of everything and therefore everything is what is to be happening according very well but here when you have in Bart a man who completely overthrows the orthodox position and then talks about eternity and then election is from all eternity and resurrection and we're all in Christ and we're all justified from all eternity then don't you see you have paganism and that isn't the same as what Abram Kuyper meant though the words are very similar Yes. I want to ask what the significance of this is of a of and what did he get from time? Well, he has a section on ethics at the end of every discussion of every doctrine, the practical application of it. And that's, we're existentially involved in this. You see, orthodoxy has a theoretical knowledge, therefore, about Christ and about salvation and they're very doctrinal and doctrinaire and all of that but now we want existential involvement and how do you get that well you get that by saying there is no god in himself but god is present to us in christ and he's saving us and we don't know ourselves unless we're saved in christ to see how we love christ the orthodox doctrine of god meant a god apart from us see now how does Kant? fit in well Kant is back of all of this we know no God in himself you see that's what he gets from Kant he gets the basic principles of his theology from Kant because we know nothing of God as Kant said in the traditional orthodox sense and when there is any revelation of that other world it has to be in terms of what we know in our principles and then it's wholly known by us even though it is at the same time holy in other words the system his system is through and through conscience and that's why it is through and through pagan and that's not one word of it means the same thing as the now whether you believe the one or the other that's person and other matter but certainly we ought to try to help people to see that they can't deal with this thing piecemeal Kant and Bart himself says as gate uns ganze this is a matter of totality. You take my position as a whole or you leave it as a whole. And yet people are constantly cutting it up in chunks and saying, Bart, Libra, Freund, Bart, 
and then you go as an American fundamentalist, you offer him a cup of tea, and then are you a pre-male, and so forth, and you know, and then you're happy. That's what Barnhouse did, for instance. And then you pray for him that he may go a little further. Well, I pray for Bar too, but I pray for Bar that he may become wholly other. Guns on there, absolutely other than he is. I'm not saying he isn't saved, but if he believes what he has in his book, that's not Christian theology. Liebe Freunde, es ist Zeit zur Essen.